0: Keep in mind, more than five months later, the world is still watching and paying much closer attention to the war in Ukraine. On one hand, People are asking the question, when will America continue to stop uh, the behavior of Vladimir Putin? But on the other hand, people are still waiting to hear more messages, for example, from China. And perhaps there should be a direct dialogue between President Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin regarding his ruthless behavior. But meanwhile, that surprisingly, that one country in Southeast Asia stood out, which is Indonesia, that the current president is willing to be the peacemaker to solve the current crisis between Ukraine and Russia. And that really begs the question, how bold is the leader today and why Indonesia among all the countries in Southeast Asia? I'm also, meanwhile, in the last 24 hours if you follow the news the satellites to say that the former Prime Minister of Japan, Shinzo Abe, was assassinated and tragically. And also in this episode, we're going to address and talk about the legacy of this person. Now, if you follow our show, that you're familiar with one of our distinguished guests, which is Professor Mark Lenton. Now, Professor Menton teaches in political science, including international relations, comparative politics, and also his current research interests, focus on China and domestic and international politics, and also the East Asia, including the country as Japan, Korea, Southeast Asia, and the Pacific Islands. Now, without further ado, Professor Mark, and welcome back to The Missing Piece.
1: Thank you, Will. Great to be back. Professor Mark, I want
0: to get started again. At the beginning, as I mentioned in the intro, we are into the fifth month that watched this war in Ukraine. At the beginning, the whole world was rather stunned about what Vladimir Putin did, not only to the government of Ukraine, but also to the people in Ukraine. However, that recently, when we follow the news that leaders in Indonesia decided to step up and willing to be the peacemaker. So my first question to you is, Where did the leader in Indonesia receive the inspiration or the strategy? And why do you think he was willing to be the peacemaker for Ukraine and Russia?
1: Thank you, and that's a really good question. And the first answer I would give is it's important to stress that this conflict um, in Ukraine is certainly not just a European issue. It is certainly not restricted to any particular part of the world. It is having very significant aftershocks throughout the world, throughout uh, the global economy. And one would argue that Indonesia is a very strong example of this. We are seeing serious strains on uh, food supplies, Mm -hmm. on supply lines. Uh, Indonesia itself has had to restrict, for example, uh, the export of palm oil, and Mm -hmm. there are concerns about food security in many parts of the world, including in the Asia-Pacific. Now, you look at Indonesia, it is not a small country, population of 275 million. Mm. It is a country that has really tried to portray itself under the uh, Wadodo administration as a potential uh, peace broker, as a potential moderator, not only in the Asia-Pacific, but as you correctly point out, also in the Ukraine conflict. Mm. So there was hope that by putting uh, themselves forward as neutral parties or relatively non-aligned parties in this conflict, that a little bit of movement could be made towards, if not necessarily a ceasefire, at least a de-escalation of the conflict. And President Widodo was looked at very carefully for this decision. Um, There was the argument that, okay, it was a first step, but a very preliminary first step. And it really calls into question how much any third party can really affect any kind of peacemaking or peace building in this war.
0: Well but professor professor Mark on one hand I understand that you were saying that again because the, uh, the resources shortage, you know, especially the food supplies. And right now, because of the war in Ukraine, the entire world is actually undergoing this negative impact of the, shore of the food supply. But also, on the other hand, people are saying that the reason why the president of Indonesia is willing to step up to be the peacemaker in the midst of the war is because the inflation is having a toll on the countries in Southeast Asia. So on another hand, do you think it's fair to say that because the whole inflation is taking place in Southeast Asia for a lot more countries, so that really motivated or inspired the president of Indonesia decide to do something? Is that a selfish act or actually he's looking for a bigger picture, not only for the country of Indonesia, but also for the more countries in Southeast Asia?
1: Well, very good question. And the Widodo government has certainly not been shy about its interest in being a broker, uh, being about being a uh, peace builder, a consensus builder, a problem solver, not only in the Asia-Pacific, but also seeing the opportunity to do the same with Ukraine conflict. So certainly there are domestic level concerns here. But Indonesia is in a very distinct position because of its political uh, placement and because it is considered to be a relatively non-aligned actor in mm. this conflict to step forward and say, okay, is there a way that we can mitigate the effects of this conflict? Because, as I said at the beginning, this is not just a year of conflict. This is having very significant effects, not only on inflation, food prices, availability of supplies, and we are seeing the effects pretty much everywhere, not only Southeast Asia, but also South Asia. I could point to uh, Sri Lanka right now, which mm-hmm. is going through a very serious situation, very serious political crisis. Mm-hmm. And I could also point to Africa. Mm-hmm. So Indonesia has also tried to portray itself as a almost a spokesperson for many parts of the developing world, many parts of the non-aligned Part of the world, so I think this is a natural outgrowth of a lot of Indonesian foreign policy of late.
0: Mm. You know, it's interestingly that when we look at a person who is willing to be the mediator between uh, 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 Vladimir Zelensky and also Vladimir Putin that we know that you have to have strong credibility or you have to have a strong personality in order to sit down with the two people that, again, who happen to disagree with each other. For example, let's take the Chinese leader, Xi Jinping. We know that the relationship between Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin should not be underestimated, you know, given this historical ties between the two countries and also this personal relationship between the two people. So my next question to you, Professor Marquis, how would you think or how do you think that president of Indonesia built himself to be this credible person and so that that both people, Zelensky and Putin, was willing to sit down with him? or in order to make out a better deal. So in other words, if we can't stop the war, but at least he's willing to put the credibility on the table so the two people are willing to compromise or at least willing to have a decent conversation so that the rest of the world will stop suffering along the war.
1: Yeah, absolutely right. I think the two priorities that um, the Wadodo government was seeking and its mediation, first of all, to develop a stronger communication line between the two governments, between Ukraine and Russia, at least try to get some kind of communication link open and working in order to get some dialogue going.
0: Mm. But the
1: second point is that, and the Indonesian government has stressed this many times, that the effects on the global economy, especially on food supplies, bear in mind, we are talking about two countries, Ukraine and Russia, that provide a massive amount of agricultural goods for many parts of the world. Mm. And if there is any way of mitigating the effects the economic effects, the effects on these agricultural supply lines, this is a great interest in Indonesia, as many other countries as well.
0: Well, let's go back to uh, something more critical as we are speaking right now, but again, we are into the fifth month of the war. So, in other words, at the beginning, the whole world thought well Putin was bluffing about or regarding invasion to Ukraine. But right now, just because people don't really talk about it, but the war still matters not only to the people in Ukraine, but also even to the people in Russia. Now, coming back to the question is, Professor Mark, how would you describe this relationship between the president of Indonesia and Vladimir Putin at this moment? So in other words, would you think this is a pure favor to build the Indonesian president credibility, or actually the the, the person is looking for something beyond the war, or is looking for something beyond this dialogue. Because we know that the reputation of Vladimir Putin has not gone up you know, as a matter of fact, is gaining more enemies than allies at this moment. China has been very silent as a bench player, and Japan has been very vocal of condemning the war, and South Korea joined this competition, excuse me, joined this condemnation as well. But again, for Indonesia, how would you think that the leader of Indonesia it's looking forward to strengthen this relationship, not only because the food supply shortage, but also in a personal level, how would you think he's going to build this personal relationship with Vladimir Putin?
1: Yes, well, I think Indonesia is representative of several large and medium economies. I could point to, let's say, Brazil or South Africa, especially India, which have been very reluctant to overtly take a side on this conflict. Obviously, they are condemning the conflict, but they have been less willing to directly point the finger at Russia as opposed to, let's say, Europe or Japan, Korea, or obviously North America. Mm. And I think that reflects very much the fact that Russia is still a very strong economic and diplomatic player in many parts of the world, including in the Asia-Pacific. And I think that the Indonesian government is very well aware of this. And to say that, okay, if we are going to work towards some kind of at least a mitigation Mm -hmm. of the conflict. We need to keep uh, communication lines open with both parties. And I think it also demonstrates concerns that if the conflict is allowed to continue, not only are we going to be seeing considerable strains on food supplies, but also energy supplies the Asia Pacific, including Indonesia, is very sensitive to uh, global fuel prices. That's obviously going to cause a cascade effect uh, when it comes to food supplies and supply chains. So it really reflects, I think, a little bit of realpolitik on Indonesia's part, that we need to work on mediation, but we need to do it in a way that is somewhat less uh, partisan, if you will, than what we're seeing from Europe.
0: Now, do you think that the work that the president of of Indonesia are actually doing that elevate his personal image or elevate the image of the country among the nations in Southeast Asia. So in other words, we know on one hand, China and the U.S. are still in this deadlock competition. So in other words, the relationship has always been, I guess in this year, we could say even colder and colder. But on the other hand, countries in Southeast Asia, no one would like to take the side either on the US side or on China side. So in other words, some experts believe the countries in Southeast Asia, they have to figure out a way how to learn to stand up on its own. I mean, not completely separated from China or the US, but to get to itself involved in the war. Now, so the question again, going back to you, Professor Marcus, would you think that Indonesia leader is willing to take the action, willing to take the initiative because he's trying to boost the image of Indonesia among the countries in, in Southeast Asia if so how effective can we expect
1: yeah that's a very good question and Going to what Indonesia has been trying to do ever since the Widodo administration began, Indonesia has been trying to portray itself as uh, certainly willing to bridge the gap between the West and China under very difficult circumstances. Now, trying to set up a combined Southeast Asian or ASEAN foreign policy, that has been vexing for the region for at least the last two, three decades. Mm. And what Indonesia is trying to do is to take advantage of its size take advantage of the fact that it is working towards becoming a more uh, standardized democracy and becoming more um, kind of conditional to a being a medium um, medium power diplomatic capability. It is really trying to demonstrate that, yes, it is possible for Southeast Asia to have an independent voice on these issues, especially at a time where several other countries in the region, I look at, for example, Vietnam, Uh, Thailand, Singapore, are trying to align themselves between a rising China and a United States and its partners that are very interested in augmenting its security role in the region through the Quad, through various uh, security initiatives. I would also very quickly point out that the new government in Australia under Anthony Albanese Mm. also provides Indonesia with a very golden opportunity to repair relations with its neighbor, which were very poor under the uh, Morrison government, to put it politely. And it also demonstrates that Indonesia is willing to restore and rebuild links in order to improve its diplomatic status.
0: Professor Mark, I want to shift our gear to the relation between Indonesia and China at this moment. And again, we know that since the pandemic and China or the Chinese government has been very generous in terms of supplying the vaccines to countries in Southeast Asia. Again, willingly or unwillingly, but you know, that's the deal behind the doors. But with that said, that China, again, you and I will agree, it's on the rise. And not only for this political power, but also for this economic hunger. But meanwhile, how would you assess the relationship between China and Indonesia at this moment? And also keep in mind that not too long ago, Most of the ASEAN leaders were invited to the White House by Joe Biden. I mean, that's really sent, I think, based on our previous discussion, that really sent a strong message to China. So do you think at this moment that the Indonesia and China relationship is also standing at the crossroads since this year is very crucial for China. How would you think that Indonesia is supposed to balance the relationship with China and without losing the interest from China?
1: Yeah, that's a good point. And one priority for Indonesia right now is to improve its trade and trading relationships. And that definitely includes the United States. Now, the Biden government has put forward some very interesting economic cooperation initiatives. But one common complaint, including from Indonesia, is that, well, okay, we're talking about greater economic cooperation, but what about greater access to American markets, which mm-hmm. is something which the Biden government has been very hesitant of, especially considering that the concept of free trade is still a political football in uh, Washington right now. Mm. Now, as for China, Indonesia is wanting to understand that China is still going to continue to rise, to continue to be a major uh, economic, diplomatic, and military player in the region. Now, one example of this balance has been China has claimed waters off of Natuna Island, which is an mm. Indonesia island. And this is disputed. And this has caused problems, especially with fishing boats and civilian vessels. That's right. So both countries have tried to very, very carefully maneuver around this difference of opinion, even though it has not been resolved. It's also understood that China is going to continue to upgrade its activities, both military and civilian, in the South China Sea as a whole. And this is going to put Chinese and Indonesian interests very much into more frequent contact. So from a strategic point of view, this is going to have to be weighed very carefully. The other issue, though, and it's not just Indonesia, but everyone's looking at this very carefully, is that what is going to happen when China completes its party congress at the end of this year what kind of china will we see emerge from that will we see the end of zero COVID? will we see a reopening of china to greater international markets and travel so indonesia is really in a position to kind of watch and wait and not do anything that would be considered politically provocative at least until the end of this year
0: Mm. professor mark i want to go back to the war in ukraine again based on the information that i gathered Current Ukrainian President Zelensky had asked for weapons from Indonesia and Widodo said after their phone call in April, but Widodo told Zelensky that Indonesia's constitution bars providing military aid to other countries. Now help us to understand what kind of message did that send to Zelensky? And we know that at this moment, no one would like to see the war continue to escalate, but meanwhile. The, the people in Ukraine are actually suffering, and the military they're they're facing this reality of weapon shortage on the daily basis. But again, Zelensky, uh, Zelensky is asking for help from all the single possible ways. But since Indonesia is willing to be the peacemaker for the war, but meanwhile Widodo refused to offer weapons supplies to Zelensky. What does that say about this person?
1: Yeah, I would say that this means that, first of all, Indonesia is quite serious about being taken seriously as a uh, neutral or at least non-aligned party. And is of the view that any kind of weapons, shipments to Ukraine would damage that, uh, damage that status, damage that capability. I think it also demonstrates, though, that Indonesia is also keeping one eye on Russia, keeping an eye on future relations with Russia, hoping that Indonesia could still act as this kind of mediator without engaging in any kind of activity which would be considered uh, open support of the, the Zelensky government quite a few other countries have also been very hesitant to send weapons directly preferring to let europe and nato take the lead here mm.
0: well professor mark i want to move on to the next session of our conversation which you know we discussed at the beginning of the show during the past 24 hours and one tragic incident happened in the country of japan and the former prime minister shinzo abe was sadly assassinated and within limited hours and this person passed away now just before our dialogue that i, I started to uh, go through some of the online comments not only from the international communities but also from uh, the uh, uh, experts within this uh, uh, asia countries uh, based on their analysis now one quote it says abe really supercharged the japanese foreign policy and japan's role on the global stage so initial. so my next question to you professor mark is I don't think it's not it's not interesting to ask you why it did it happen, but I wanna want you to comment on Shinzo Abe's legacy. As soon as we find out that this person passed away, how should we understand that his legacy and based on the milestone and the work that he did?
1: This is a terrible tragedy for Japan. This has been a terrible week for the country. Um, Political assassinations are very rare in Japan. Uh, It has been said on many news services that gun ownership and gun availability is also very rare in Japan. So for this to happen is uh, incredibly tragic. Mm. Talking about his legacy, I could point to many different areas, both domestically and internationally, including the Asia-Pacific. Abe, uh, Abe Shinzo was one of the few uh, Japanese leaders who had a second chance to become Prime Minister, mm. that's very rare in Japanese politics, and when he returned to office, he was quite dedicated to making very sweeping changes to the country's economy, to the country's politics, and even to the country's strategy. He was very much wedded to the idea that Japan should become a quote unquote normal country to start to move away from the traditional pacifism of the, uh, the Cold War era and mm. to reflect the fact that Japan is in a completely changed neighborhood uh, in many aspects internationally. So in economics, he was uh, very interested in moving Japan away from the various decades of lost opportunities, mm. the recessions that plagued the country since the 90s. His plans included the so-called Three Arrows uh, economic reforms, which were partially successful. Uh, He referred to these uh, reforms as Abenomics. That's right. He was also very, very dedicated to changing the Japanese constitution to better reflect modern times, and in that he was only partially successful. But he also wanted Japan to be a greater international player. Now, two big concepts which are very commonplace now in Asia-Pacific diplomacy First of all, the idea of the free and open Asia-Pacific, that definitely came from um, Prime Minister Abe. He also came up with the idea of the security diamond, which would bring together India, Japan, the United States, and Australia, that Mm. later referred to as the Quad, and again, that was his uh, insights that put it together. And even when he retired, he was extremely active. Um, When he was assassinated, he was in the middle of a campaign rally, he was still very dedicated, to being an active player in uh, Japanese politics, and he was still considered a voice that was very extensively heard, most recently on the subject of Taiwan. He was also very much in favor of Japan improving relations with Taiwan and engaging the island much more directly and standing up to China, which obviously caused a bit of difficulties in Beijing. Mm. He was a great friend to the United States. He was a great friend to many in Europe and throughout the region. He was also attempting, although with mixed uh, results, to improve relations with South Korea. So he was definitely a giant in Japanese politics, even if he didn't necessarily agree with all of his policies, he simply could not be ignored.
0: Again, fast forward. Now we have a new person sitting in the house. You know, again, is the brand brand new prime minister in Japan today. Of course, that after the whole assassination took place, and uh, um, Shida was very sad and it was very distraught by this uh, a tragedy. But meanwhile, Professor Mark, my next question to you is. How would you think that this new prime minister is able to learn from Shinzo Abe? And again, you know, we all have different uh, political aspects or political or economic expectations, but I believe... We we all should take lessons from our predecessors, and so that that we are not going to repeat the same mistake over and over again. So now, for the sitting prime minister of Japan, how would you expect that this person is able to learn some of the uh uh uh, uh I guess lessons or uh, important uh principles from Abe, and so that the Japan is going to be much stronger or is going to be much forward? Go ahead.
1: Yes. Um, Kushida Fumio, he was brought in um, when he assumed power. He was widely perceived to be potentially a caretaker, prime minister, because uh, since Abe stepped down, there had been a small number of very short-lived prime ministerships, and there was still a bit of a question over whether Prime Minister Kushida would also wind up being a very short-term prime minister. But again, these are not normal times. We are dealing with a Japan that is facing a great deal of external and internal pressure. Mm. One area which I think that the Prime Minister is learning from uh, Prime Minister Abe is the need sometimes to kind of go beyond um, business as usual politics, to go beyond just dealing with the bureaucracy Mm. and to really start to look at, okay, where is Japan going? It's very easy to... Just view japan as a peripheral player it is a very important to note though that this is a country that is still the third largest economy in the world that has a great deal of international regional and diplomatic pull and is going to be asked by the united states and by its various friends and allies to take a greater role not only in terms of china But also, as you pointed out, uh, Japan has been very vocal about standing up to Russia.
0: Mm.
1: So all of these challenges need to be addressed in the short term. And I could also add North Korea to the mix. North Korea is also very much a wild card in the region right now. Mm. So I would say that the lesson that is being learned at the moment, and this is going to be key because on Sunday, the upper house elections are going to be taking place uh, in Japan. And this could be a very important uh, test for um, uh, for the government. That the need to kind of figure out where Japan is going, not only in terms of its policies, but also in terms of its identity, is being key. Like one of the major contributions that Prime Minister Abe made is that he really defined a great deal of uh, Japan's political identity during his terms in office. Mm -hmm. Other than, I would say, Kuzumi Junichiro, I can't think of another more recent Prime Minister that really put such a personal stamp on uh, Japanese politics. And I think that's very key to understand for his successors.
0: Hmm. Professor Mark, what about the relation between China and Japan? And again, we know that this week for the current uh, foreign minister, Wang Yi has been very busy and he's actually traveling on the road and he's attending this prime minister uh, summit. And he so far, he met, you know, the uh, secretary of the state, uh, Anthony Blinken, and also along with other prime ministers. No, I believe that the message for from Chinese government to the world has never been changed. So, in other words, you know, we believe that mutual cooperation, and we believe that uh, this uh, a meaningful collaboration towards the greater future. But again, those are can be seen as political soundbites. But meanwhile, I want to get down to the reality is how should we evaluate or how should we expect the relationship between Japan and China at this moment? But And also we know that this year it's very crucial for China, not only for this presidency under Xi Jinping, but also, you know, for the Congress party, then a lot of major projects that are expected to be done. So how would you think that current government in Japan should be careful or strategically planned in terms of dealing with China. How would you assess the relationship at this moment?
1: Yeah, the Kushida government has made it very clear. There is very little ambiguity that it wants to better align strategically with the United States and including with Europe. During the last NATO uh, summit, Japan was very much front and center and that caused a great deal of concern in Beijing. Mm. It has kind of added to Chinese concerns that what NATO is basically seeking to do is expand its interest into the Asia Pacific, um, not only in regards to Japan, but also Korea. And I also think that the Kushida government has really tried to portray itself as, as I noted, standing up to Russia's uh, aggressions. There has been some incidents with both Both Chinese and Russian vessels getting very close to Japanese waters, so that's certainly putting the pressure on the Kushida government. That's right. And we go back to China's own internal um, domestic situation leading up to the Party Congress and China having to deal with some very serious economic questions uh, in the near term. This definitely puts the Japanese uh, government in a very difficult position. And what we're seeing now is Japan become less restrained in terms of talking about its defense, its defense budget is going to go up. There's going to be a lot more discussion about cooperation as well as joint operations both in the East and the South China Sea. So Japan is really trying to portray itself as, again going back to what Abe wanted, a more normal country with normal strategic concerns, uh, reflecting a difficult neighborhood and difficult times.
0: Mm. Professor Mark, I know, again, you're very busy. Now, let's get to the last questions of the uh, conversation. I want to talk about the relationship between U.S. and China at this moment. Again, not only for this year, it's crucial for China, but also it's very important for the U.S. government as well. Under Joe Biden this year, the midterm election is coming up. So in other words, both the Republicans and, and the Democrats, they're gearing up. Not only they're hoping that the messages can be more transparent and also can be well delivered to the voters, But also foreign policy, especially towards Russia, towards China, you know, any other countries top the agenda. So I want to get your reaction so far. How would you assess Joe Biden's performance, especially towards the countries in Asia? I understand many people say that he came up with this whole Indo-Pacific framework but to me that framework economically speaking and also political speaking has been very ambiguous. So to you or you know to all the experts that I want to know from your perspective how should we expect that any changes regarding the relationship between Joe Biden and China at this moment, or we should wait until 2014 until the next new president the coming up with a better strategies. What is your take, Professor Mark?
1: Yeah, that is an excellent question. And first place I would start is that the US government is uh, really having to navigate the problem of China the economic power versus China the strategic power.
0: Mm.
1: Now <laughs> Many of the tariffs that were put on China during the Trump administration are still there. In Mm. some cases, they've been tinkered with, but they are very much still there, and they are very politically popular. As many commentators have correctly noted, China is one of the few areas where both parties are in relative agreement. The idea Mm. that China is a competitor and that China is a potential threat. However, underline, with the ongoing problem of inflation and the ongoing trouble of the United States having to rework its trade policies, there has been pressure, including from business organizations, to start removing those tariffs Mm. in order to ease inflation uh, difficulties. Now, from an economic point of view, that would probably provide short-term benefit. But then we get to the problem of the Biden government being very worried that even The perception of being conciliatory towards China, especially now, would be very difficult as we lead up to the midterms. Mm. So the politics and the economics are definitely starting to bang into each other. Now, the Biden government has been trying to set up an alternative to the Belt and Road, um, which is coming very close to its 10th anniversary, by the way. And the United States is only now really starting to set up an alternative framework. It used to be referred to as the Build Back Better World. That's right. The name has shifted a bit. Now we're talking about the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework. Um, Certainly steps in the right direction, but we get to the core problem of are we going to see a situation whereby states in the Asia-Pacific can have better access to American markets? Mm. That is the lodestone of what many um, uh, governments, economies in the region, in the Asia-Pacific are looking for. And the United States is simply not in a position to do that under current uh, political circumstances. Mm. So that means that China will still be considered to be the alternative economic partner for many in the Asia-Pacific, despite concerns about the growth of uh, Chinese military power. Mm. So again, we have a balancing act to take place. I do say, though, that what the Biden government has done has really kind of assured many of its Asia-Pacific friends and allies that, no, we are not going to give up the region because we're focusing so much on Ukraine, that we consider this area to be a crucial economic actor, especially in current uncertain times. And we do recognize that China is starting to become more of a challenge to many, many governments in the Pacific Rim. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, from a diplomatic point of view, we're seeing very good uh, strides. But in terms of economic policy making, yeah, we're still waiting for a lot of results. Mm.
0: Professor Mark, I want to end our conversation again going back to the topic on China. This year, I want to say, for China, has been very busy, You know, especially for the sitting President Xi Jinping. Not only that he addressed this global issue, started with a Ukrainian war, and also ended with you know the summit one after another, but also right now he's gearing up for the party congress and also gearing up for his continuing of his presidency, etc. My simple question, which is the last one to you, Professor Mark, is how much do you think that Xi Jinping is very much interested in interfering or even trying to help out? with international affairs, because we know, keep in mind that China has always been in this neutral position that tried to maintain this non-interference attitude towards international affairs. But in reality, we know just because that you are not interested in participating, it doesn't mean that other countries won't pull you into the conversation. So, but I want to know that so far from your perspective, from your perspective, how much can we expect China continue to stay silent or stay neutral in the midst of the whole world uh, shift you know keep in mind that you know North Korea Russia you know country in Southeast Asia and with the United States so many things can't be seen as distractive for China how long can Xi Jinping stay quiet or stay away? From those matters?
1: That is the real question, like in many cases, China is still trying to adjust to the fact that if you're going to be a great power, uh, you get a lot of rights, absolutely, but you also get a lot of responsibilities mm. that you will be asked, OK, what do you think about this particular situation? Can you do anything to resolve this particular crisis? And as you correctly point out, for a very long time, Beijing was uncomfortable with that role, usually trying to stay back, let another country take the lead, maybe make comments uh, from further out. That's right. But it really doesn't have that luxury anymore. Now, in some cases, like for example, China has said more than once that it would be happy to be a mediator during the uh, Ukraine-Russia conflict. And this was not taken very seriously in the West. However, China has, for example, made it a point of uh, putting itself forward as a mediator, for example, in the Horn of Africa to mm. deal with the various conflicts there. And it is trying to, again, say that, OK, we are in a very distinct position not being uh, in the West, not being a direct uh, participant in some of these conflicts to act as a mediator, to act as an interlocutor. But the fact is, in order to do that, China needs to still kind of involve itself to get more information, to get more data, to expand its diplomacy uh, in many of these parts of the world. And Africa is going to be a very crucial test of that, I should say. And the problem now is that with China gone through a very difficult diplomatic period, we can talk at length about Wolf Warrior diplomacy, Mm. the fact that China has become much more sensitive to any kind of diplomatic activity that would be seen as conciliatory towards Taiwan or potentially insulting to the Chinese nation. It's again, having to fight these kind of two impulses on one hand to portray China as most positive uh, as possible, but also to put itself forward as a uh, potential arbitrator for some of these conflicts. Mm -hmm. And once again, we're back to the party Congress, like so much attention is going to be placed once they announce the date of these meetings. It is going to be a very, very quiet time, at least Uh, from us outside of the uh, situation, trying to see, okay, what is the next Chinese government going to look like? Yes, Xi Jinping will get his third term, but who will he have to power share with? Mm. Will there need to be a shift in China's foreign policy, reflecting the fact that things are very difficult in China, both in terms of its regional situation and internally?
0: Mm. Professor Mark, one more question add on. Again, I'm sorry, but it just gets more interesting as you start to analyze. How much do you think the world, especially the Western Hemisphere, care about China's warrior wolf uh, diplomacy. So in other words, we have been uh, uh, hearing this term for a long time, and we know that Xi Jinping has always uh, had this poker face. So in other words, it's rather difficult to read his mind, and you really have to see the reality behind the doors. So for the U.S. and also for the rest of the world, how much do you think that China's foreign policy or this wolf warrior diplomacy matters at this moment?
1: The whole kind of origin of wolf warrior diplomacy. Now, the concept is relatively new, but we have seen cases uh, much further back. And I can point to, for example, the diplomatic rift between China and Norway over the Nobel Peace Prize incident,
0: Mm.
1: where China has used this kind of assertive. Uh, diplomatic activity to say, okay, I don't like what you're saying about my country. I don't like what you're saying about our policy. Mm. To demonstrate that we are a large power. We are a major economic player. And one term that gets often used quite a bit is uh, don't smash the rice bowl while you're eating from it. So in other words, if you want to improve economic relations with us, please do not insult the Chinese nation. That's right. So... This has definitely had an effect not only on the countries involved, I could point to, for example, Canada, uh, Lithuania most recently, but it also acts as a signal to other parts of the world that there are red lines which should really not be crossed. Now, I would say, though, more recently, there's been a bit of a pulling back of this kind of behavior. I think there's the understanding, and I think this is being reflected in the top echelons of the Chinese government, that this can be taken too far, and that in a situation whereby China is in much more direct competition with the United States, for support, for trade, that this kind of assertive behavior simply doesn't match that of a rising great power. And one point that both me and my colleagues have made in the China policy community is that if you're going to be a great power, you're going to have to learn to put up with criticism. It's simply part of the job. That's right.
0: Well, again, I think that, oh, everyone says that right now, again, based on our previous conversation, Professor Markets, we're still only more than halfway through of the year of 2022. And if I remember last time when I asked you the question, I say, what can we do or how can the leader expect what's going to happen to the world for the rest of the year? And I think your answer was very simple. It's just assume nothing. So in other words, that we have to uh, take one step at a time as we continue. Need to pay attention to what's happening in the world today. Well, Professor Mark Lenton teaches in political science and including international relations and uh, comparative po- politics, including China, Asia Pacific, and his current research interests focus on China, domestic and international conflict, and East Asia countries such as Japan, Korea, Southeast Asia, and Pacific Island. Professor Mark, it's been a pleasure speaking to you, and thank you so much for taking your time to join our show again. I know you're very busy, but we love to keep in touch with you and have you back on the show over and over again as we continue to analyze the political and the social progress not only in china but also across the community thank you professor for doing this